Welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Today on Nelda Live, we are so pleased to have four-time New York Times best-selling author, Daniel Pink. Dan has these incredibly diverse interests, ranging from what motivates people, to the best times of day to think or work, to how to persuade others. I am fascinated by why he chose all these different subjects, and I want to get his best bits of advice for us. So, let's see what he has to share with us today. So, Dan, I am so pleased to have you on Nelda Live today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Nelda. It's good to be with you. It is so good to have you. You know, I have looked at a number of your uh, talks on timing, persuasion. I'm trying to think of all the different ones that I've sat and listened to. I listen to you while doing art. So, it's always interesting um, to uh, listen to your different subjects, but... I kind of want to have a sense of the person behind all of this. So if you will, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who is Dan Pink? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, I guess uh, after 50-something years, I'm still trying to figure out who I am, like all of us. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a journey. Uh, let's see here. Uh, you know, I um, am someone who figured out like what I wanted to be when I grew up fairly late in the game. So I started, um, um, I've been working, I'm talking to you from my home office here in Washington, DC. It's a converted one car garage. I live right there. Um, in fact, you can sort of see, I'll give you a little, if you look over there, that that was the garage door, that, that window that you see over here, yes. kind of outlined like that, that was a garage door. Um, so this is, this is where I work. And um, I grew up and I became a writer. Um, but it, I didn't really become a writer uh, on my own until I, until my early 30s. So that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. So I'm, I'm a writer um, and, and that's what I do. Um, that, that's really, that's, that's, that's who I am. And that, that discovery of who I was like, took, took a while and yeah. probably is changing in some sense too. Where'd you grow up? I grew up, uh, well, I was born in, uh, I was actually born in Wilmington, Delaware, home of, of Joe Biden, but I, uh, I grew up in uh, Columbus, Ohio. So I consider myself a, I moved there when I was a little kid. Uh, so I consider myself a Midwesterner. I, I grew up in, I, I grew up in, Ohio, I consider myself a child of the Big Ten. So I grew up in, uh, in the shadow of the Ohio State University. Uh, I went to a Big Ten school myself for college. Uh, so I lived most of my formative years uh, in the Midwest. And that ended up being, I think, much more important to who I am than I ever would have suspected. So like where you, you know, like you don't remember anything that happens to you before you're five or so, right? So, right. so from, from, from the time I was five until the time I was 22, which is pretty formative years, right? Uh, I lived in the Midwest and, and that um, made a big difference. I think for the positive. Oh I mean, yeah. I mean, really for the positive, yeah. Yeah, I grew up, uh, I was born in New Orleans, so I grew up just outside New Orleans. And I think I spent most of my time as a kid with mud between my toes. I mean, just to be honest with you, because so I I look at that and moved to Texas by the time I was in second grade. So, you know, but the, I, I always kind of think fondly of the, of the days that I had just to wander. <laughs> 
And so it really does frame out something for you that's different. Um, so do you, did you write a lot as a kid? So, so I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I went to college. Uh, I went to law school. I worked in politics for a while. Couldn't stand that. Um, um, and, but, but something strange happened when I was probably from the time I was in high school, uh, all the way to the time I was always quote unquote writing on the side. So, uh, I was, um, so let me give you an example. Um, I again, um, in college, I was a, uh, linguistics major. I studied linguistics, mm-hmm. which is a, which is a, a social science. Um, but, but, um, but also a very kind of mathematical social science. It's uh, super analytical, more in some ways, just a different kind of approach than say something like psychology. Uh, in some ways, more sort of in its way of knowing like economics in some ways than, than even some, something like psychology. Uh, so, so very kind of hardcore mathematical social science. And yet um, I, for whatever reason, I entered a sh- like some short story contests and won. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, when I was in when I was in law school, I um, did a summer internship instead of at a law firm at a at a newspaper. Uh, I uh, spent some. I, sp- I was like writing articles and essays and things on the side, and, and you know, uh, even to the point when I was working in politics, I was doing this stuff on the side, and I wasn't even getting paid for it. Uh, and it wasn't like I said, "Oh, I want to become a writer." It's just like, "Hey, this is sort of what I did." And um, eventually, I, you know, and here I'm like a grown man. I mean, I'm 30 years old. I have a wife. Uh, uh, I have a kid, and it's you know, it's midnight, and I'm sitting at a computer in this very, even though I have this very demanding day job, and I'm writing some stupid essay that I'm not going to get paid for. And my wife finally makes me helps me realize that, "Hey, wait a second, you're doing this thing on the side for no money. Maybe you actually like doing this." Mm. Um, and so, um, and so I guess, I mean, again, I, I, if the tale is instructive at all, it, it's instructive because I think we can extract a lesson from it. And I think the lesson perhaps is this, um, that, you know, a lot of times people ask, especially young people, it's like, what's your passion? What's your passion? Mm-hmm. And I freaking hate that question. I think that's a terrible question. Uh, because I feel like if you ask somebody, if you ask me, what's your passion? I, I feel like I have to give a really, really, really good answer. Um, and I usually don't have that good of an answer. And, uh, but if you just say, I, I think the bigger, the, the more insightful question perhaps is like, what do you do? What do you do when nobody's watching? What do you care about when nobody's watching? What do you do just because this is what you do? And it turned out that writing is what I do. And if you look at my life as a writer now, if you say, is writing your passion? I would say, no, because writing is really freaking hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard. At least it's really hard for, I think it's hard for most people. I think it's really hard for me. And, and, and there, I would say more days than not, I don't like it. Um, and yet it's what I do. So, uh, so, so in some ways the, the journey that we're on is a journey to discover what do you do? You know, you must do it pretty well because you have six of out of the six books, four of them, New York times bestsellers, right? So keep writing, please. And so you've, you know, I was looking at the different books when, when we started researching you and, and uh, my team started bringing me things. It was, uh, you've written about timing, sales, persuasion, motivation, and creativity. Mm-hmm. So all these like seem like this disparate things, but to you, there must be a link between them. Is there? 
there are two different ways to answer that question. Okay, so the the obvious way to answer that question is, of course, Nelda, there is a distinct, clear linkage between them. In fact, I had this intentional plan from all along to architect this whole oeuvre of work. Okay, but that's bullshit. I mean, the the, the answer, the the real question is, what what links them together, if anything, is it stuff I'm interested in. Mm. That's the link, uh, and so. And, and, and my reasoning is, is, I think, twofold on that. Number one is that, uh, like, write what you're interested, write, write what you're interested in. Um, here's the thing. Uh, as I said before, writing is so difficult, at least for me. I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but, but I find that most real writers find writing challenging. Like, it doesn't always come easily, that it's a, that it's a little bit of a struggle. Um, and so if you're going to struggle, you got to want to struggle. You want to struggle over something you actually are interested in and care about. Uh, mm. Rather than something that you don't you don't care about, so I would never write a book like let's let's say that there was an incredible market out there in America for books about beetles. Okay, um, I don't give a crap about beetles. So even though it, you know someone said, oh, we'll pay you a few million dollars to write a book about beetles, I would be miserable because it's like I don't want to write a book about beetles. I'm not interested in beetles. So something that you're interested in can get you through the the, the difficulty of writing a book. The second thing though is that you know I, I find that if I'm interested in something. If I find something intriguing, a set of ideas, a concept intriguing, chances are a lot of other people will too. It's, like, it's not like I have some kind of super refined elite taste or anything like that. I'm just, you know, it's like everybody else. So if I find something interesting, the odds are pretty good that someone else will find it interesting. So let's talk about your latest book because I found, I was listening to you talk to me the other day, and uh, I found your, your, your new book really interesting. And it's called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. So in that, you really focus on when things happen, how important that is, the idea of timing. So can you tell us what that means and maybe also tell us how you got interested in timing as an issue? Okay. Uh, I can take the second question first. No, okay. so, 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 so it's a good place to talk about that because I would come out to my office here uh, and I would do my work uh, and I would be very intentional about what I did. So I would have a to-do list as I have today, my to-do list, mm-hmm. okay? I have my to-do list. Um, I'd be pretty intentional, but I'm very intentional about who I work with. Uh, one of the great things about working for myself is that um, I have a much greater sovereignty over who I work with, and that's really important with, to me. Um, and, um, but but uh, when it came to like when to do stuff, I, 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 I wasn't doing a very strategic job of that. It's like, when should I do my writing? I don't know when I feel like it. Uh, when should I have a conversation like this? When should I have a meeting? When should I do an interview, whatever? Um, I was making those decisions in a very sloppy way that frustrated me. I said, there's got to be a better way to make these decisions. I looked around for guidance. It didn't exist. That really surprised me because again, coming back to what we were talking about before, I feel like I can't be the only one who's asked this question. And so, um, and so, you know, some of the books that I've written have, have taken, have looked at these big bodies of social science and said, what can we learn from these massive troves of science and apply to our daily lives. So I said, I wonder if there's any research on this question of timing. And it turned out there was a huge amount of research on this question on timing. It was spread all over the place. It was in, it was in literally two dozen different disciplines. And I said, well, if someone is willing to do the hard work of going through all of these studies across you know, 25 different disciplines, uh, we might be able to piece together the evidence-based ways to solve the problem that I was facing here in this office, which is when should I do work? And uh, and so that's and so that's what I did. 
So, so at some level, I mean, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound cheeky, but like, this is like this latest book, this is a book I wanted to read, um, but no one had written it. So I had to write it. But it's interesting how many people, Dan, that I've, that I've interviewed who've written books who say just that. It was a book that I needed to read. It was yeah, what exactly. I need, right? So, right, right. Absolutely. So, so I, think that's a, I think that's a good, I think that's a good, you know, I think that's a good, um, I think it's a good standard for writers. Like, like, is it, is, is this, you know, to me, like, I even have a, a slightly even, even higher standard. Like, like, like if this, if some, like the way I look at it, if this book were written by somebody else, okay, this book that I'm, I'm working on a new book right now, this, you know, take any book. If this book were written by somebody else, would I try to get a copy the first day and read it immediately? And, you know, like, that's my test. And if the answer to that is no, then it's probably not a book I should write. If the answer to that question is yes, then maybe, maybe I'm the person to write it. Maybe. Let's just start with one day. Okay. When you look across, because I know you did a lot of different time skills. So yeah. what did you find about what we should do with one day? Okay, great, great question. And really, really, and, and that one day is actually a very profound question. Um, mm -hmm. Because because when we think about it, when we think about units of like, I never thought about time, I'm not a physicist, but when we think about units of time, a lot of units of time in our lives are not natural. So, so for instance, if you look at like a week, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing natural about a week being seven days, we could have said a week is nine days or 11 days, all right, even a second, a second is based um, like human beings decided that a second was this long, we could have said nope, a second is that long, okay, so, but when you think about a day, we can't do anything about a day. A day is as long as a day wants to be. We don't have a say about that, right? Because we're on this planet and it's turning. And right. so that ends up being, in, in some ways, now the, I mean, one of the most, I think the most fundamental unit of, of, of time. Um, and so here's what we know um, at, at a top level. Uh, it's super important. It, it changed the way I do things. Number, the, one of the most important things that we know is that our cognitive abilities, our brain power, does not remain constant over the course of a day. It right. changes, right? That's really important. And the trouble is, is that when we schedule things for ourselves and our organizations, we tend to just sort of assume that, oh, a brain power is basically the same. So doing something at, we just have to figure out a time slot that it works for everybody. So 2 p.m. is the same as 9.30 is the same as 5.30. Not true. Our brain power changes over the course of the day. It changes in important ways and significant ways. So the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can sometimes be significant. And then uh, also uh, the best time to do something depends on it is, uh, depends on what it is you're doing. And so if you take those principles and then actually start unpacking the science, you can figure out actually a better, smarter, more strategic way to configure your own day. Yeah, it's interesting because I was listening to you talk about this the other day doing art and I'm, I'm listening to you and I was like, oh, you know what? My middle child is taking mathematics. I have two younger ones. Mathematics in the afternoon. What in the world are we doing? How old? So, uh, uh, 13. Yeah. And so I switched it for next semester. I called well, <laughs> and I said, hey. So here's what we know. Um, there's a study done of, uh, at the LA Unified School District of, uh, it was elementary school students. But what it showed is that students who took math in the morning scored higher, had higher grades and scored higher in standardized tests than students who took math in the afternoon, period, full stop. Um, uh, you see a, a really kind of a remarkable study out of Denmark, where in Denmark, students take standardized tests. In Denmark, students take standardized tests on a computer, so rather than on like the, the number two pencil Scantron thing that we do in some jurisdictions, including my own here in the District of Columbia. 
And um, so, but the typical Danish school has more students than computers. So on test day, everybody can't take the test at the same time. So what happens is the students are just randomly assigned to take the test at different times of day. Some take it early, some take it late. It turns out that, that um, the difference between taking the test in the morning and taking the test in the afternoon. So you got this kid taking the test in the morning and we're talking about this kid taking the test in the afternoon. On average, that kid tests as if she's missed two weeks of school. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, so there are, you know, material differences in performance based on time of day, and we're not factoring that in. And when it comes to education, one of the things that we know is that the, the harm of bad timing in education hits um, less advantaged, low-income kids the hardest. And the benefits of solving the problem um, help them the most. So let's, let's move to adulthood then. So yeah. we're trying to be more productive, more creative, more efficient, less stressed. So how should we think about our days according to all the research? Yeah. So what we have is that we have a set of design principles and the set of design principles begins with who we are as a person. What we want to try to do is we want to try to match up three things, our type, our task and our time. Okay. Type, task, time. Now type, type means what's called a chronotype, which is a term from the field chronobiology, uh, which has to do with what is our, our natural inclinations, our propensities. Do we naturally wake up early and go to sleep early? Do we naturally wake up late and go to sleep late? Are we somewhere in between? And what we know is that over the whole population, here's what the distribution looks like. About 15% of us are very strong early people. Wake up early, go to sleep early. About 20% of us are very strong late people. Naturally wake up late and go to sleep late. And about two thirds of us are in the middle although we tilt a little bit more toward that morning-ish side. And so to oversimplify things in a useful way is this. The type is, is about 80% of us um, go through the day. 80% of us are one way, 20% of us are other, other way. So owls, if you're a night owl, you're a different breed. 80% of us are not night owls. Night owls are different. And here's what we know, all right? 80% of us move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, a peak, a trough, a recover. We have our peak early in the day. We have a trough early to mid-afternoon, and we have a recovery later in the day. Owls more complicated. We'll get to them in a second. All right, owls, owls, you hit your peak. All you owls watching Nelly's show hit your peak much, 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 much later in the day. Early evening, mid-evening, late evening. These are people who are working well at one o'clock in the morning. I can't even see like. To me, the idea of working at one in the morning is almost is 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 mind-boggling, right? Um, and so, um, so here's what we know: during our peak, which for most of us is early in the day, that's when we're most vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilant means that you can bat away distractions. Okay, you're less susceptible to distractions; you can knock them away. And so, the peak is when we should be doing our heads-down analytic work, work that requires you know focus and attention. Uh, a good example would be writing. Another good example would be analyzing data, uh, preparing the steps of a strategy, okay? That we should be doing that during our peak. 80% of us, that's early in the day, owls late in the day. During the trough, early to mid-afternoon, terrible time of day. Uh, we joke about it. It's a terrible time of day. You see differences, you see decrements in performance across almost every domain, from the corporate world I mean, my God, the stuff on healthcare is just terrifying. Like, don't go to the hospital in the afternoon if you can avoid it. Don't go to an important doctor appointment in the afternoon if you can avoid it. Certainly, do not have surgery in the afternoon if you can avoid it. 
Um, and so, um, and so there's big drops in performance during that, um, trough period early to mid afternoon. So that's when we should be doing work that doesn't require massive brain power, or creativity or analytic work. And then later in the day, late afternoon and early evening for 80% of us, something very interesting happens. Our mood goes up, but our vigilance does not. So we have high mood and low vigilance. And that ends up being a very helpful combination for certain kinds of cognitive tasks for what, what psychologists call insight problems. Insight problems are problems that have non-obvious solutions, where you're not even sure what the problem is, where you're trying to come up with something that no one else had thought about before, mm. when you're trying to see around corners, anticipate problems, all right? Um, and, and so th something like brainstorming. And so what we know, again, let me just wrap this up so that it's useful to people, but I want your folks to know that there's some really, really good science behind it is, is a set of design principles that look like this. We should be doing our analytic work during our peak, which for most of us is early in the day. We should be doing our administrative work, answering routine emails, filling out expense reports during the trough, which is for almost all of us is early to mid-afternoon. And we should be doing our insight work, things that are more iterative, creative, that benefit from mental looseness late afternoon and early evening. And now, again, the science doesn't tell us that like with some of these, you know, the productivity websites tell you, it's like, oh, everybody should get up at 4.30 in the morning and work, you know, it doesn't tell, you got to figure that out on your own. But the general principles are that, analytic in the peak, administrative in the trough, insight in the recovery. And if you do that, uh, the odds are very, very good. You're going to feel better. You're going to get more work done and you're going to get better work done. I thought another one of your illustrations of this was not wanting to go before the judge. <laughs> oh, at certain times a day as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a, that. That study has been called. That study has been somewhat controversial. Um, but but what it showed. But what it shows is that people make different decisions at different times of day. Yeah. There's another very compelling uh, study. Um, it, I'm glad you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned the judicial system because there's there's or the, the legal system because there are, there's some really really kind of terrifying evidence coming out of that. I'll give you the, one of the most interesting studies is this. So what they did is they um, these these experimenters. Um, um, gave a group of participants some facts. So here, here are the facts of a criminal defendant. And the facts were identical. So we gave, the facts were identical. We gave one group the set of facts and said, your defendant's name is Robert Garner. They gave another group, they said, here are your facts. Your defendant's name is Roberto Garcia. And they said, is this person guilty of this crime? When the jurors deliberated in the morning, they gave the same verdict for Garcia and for Garner, no difference. However, when they deliver, when a different set of jurors deliberated in the afternoon, same set of facts, they were more likely to convict Garcia and exonerate Garner. So people were more susceptible to laziness, shortcuts, which include things like, you know, not, not only discrimination, but include things like discrimination. Mm, that's that's when you were talking about that, I was like, that floored me. I had to stop and think about it for a while. And it made me really, really think about the way we do things, right? And and how we need to pay attention to this. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, as someone as, 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 yeah, as someone trained as a lawyer, I, I, I tell my own, like, like, don't become a criminal defendant. Under yeah. <laughs> There's a, there's a, there's a really good, there's a, that's a terrifying topic, Nelda. There's a really oh, yeah. good book 
um, by a guy named Adam Benferrato at Temple Law School about how much of the legal mm -hmm. system is built on assumptions about human behavior that are just flatly wrong. So everything from like eyewitness testimony, eyewitness testimony is worth nothing. Oh, yeah. um, uh, confessions, to my surprise, uh, confessions are unbelievably easy to co coerce. Mm -hmm. I mean, human beings are very susceptible to confessing to things. I, I find that shocking, confessing yes. to things that they didn't. And so, so, so I tell my kids, don't be a criminal. Don't just don't be a defendant. Just don't do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's pull back and let's look at milestones because mm. this is a longer time scale. Sure. What can you tell us about milestones? Yeah, it's another really, really, really great point. And it's a, it's a really smart way to think about timing itself. So, so what a lot of social scientists have discovered is uh, the, the existence of exactly what you're talking about, what, what are called temporal milestones, all right, temporal milestones. And so uh, we can think about temporal milestones serving the same, more or less similar function as um, physical milestones, so physical, so like if you, if you were to give people directions to your house, um, you might give them some milestones to look for. Look for that store. Don't go past, you know, that, that kind of thing. Just so, and so what happens when we have a physical milestone? We, we slow down a little bit. We orient ourselves. And so temporal milestones have that same kind of effect. But there's one particular kind of temporal milestone that is really powerful. Uh, and it's what's known as a fresh start date. Uh, and this came from some research from Katie Milkman, um, Jason Reese, and Heng Chen Dai at Penn. What they found out is that certain dates in the calendar are milestones. They get us to slow down, but they have a dual effect. And what they do is that they get us essentially to open up a, a fresh ledger on ourselves. And, and, and the metaphor of a ledger is important for people who are old enough to remember what actually a physical ledger looks like. This is not, this is just a pile of papers. But if you think about like a physical ledger, you know, where you're, you're doing bookkeeping, it's like you turn the page and it's like, oh, OK, it's a blank page in the ledger. It's a new quarter. It's a new reporting period or something like that. And so there's certain dates where we open a fresh ledger on ourselves. We relegate our old selves to the past and are essentially remade on that mm -hmm. fresh start date. And what this means in a practical sense from this really brilliant research is that on this particular kind of temporal milestone, a fresh start date, we are more likely to begin behavior change. And if we're more likely to begin behavior change, we're actually more likely to stick with it. Um, and so what this means in a practical sense is that if you want to start a program of behavior change, um, lose weight, exercise more, um, get to the office earlier, whatever, um, stop drink, you know, drink less, drink more. Um, the, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you're better off. You're better off doing it on starting it on a say a Monday. Or, or this is really important for teams. So if you're a boss and you want your team to take a new approach to something, okay, we're going to change the way we're doing things. Okay, you're better off starting on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. You're better off starting on the first of the month rather than the thirteenth of the month. You're better off starting on. Uh, I was amazed in this research, like the importance of like even like federal holidays. You're better off starting on the day after Labor Day uh -huh. than the two days before Labor Day, or or something like that. Um, and so, um, and so that's a so again, that's another I think a really good example of how we can use the science of timing to make better decisions in our life. So for me, if I were to start doing something in a different way, there's no way I would start on a Thursday now. I would wait till the Monday because I think on Monday I have a better chance of actually sustaining that behavior. Uh -huh. And um, you know, we're coming up around this huge, you know, we're, we're just a few weeks away as we're talking here from um, uh, New Year's. 
And, you know, where we talk the ultimate temporal milestone, it's why we have New Year's resolutions. And my view is that New Year's resolutions get such a bad rap um, because what we hear, like, like, it's like clockwork. Okay. So people will have New Year's resolutions and then in like, you know, February, there'll be a, somebody will, Gallup will do a poll or some uh, private entity will do a poll and CNN will report and saying, it's only February and two thirds of people have abandoned their New Year's resolution, aren't sticking to their New Year's resolutions anymore. New Year's resolutions stink. And I, and I look at that and say, what? A third of people are still sticking with their New Year's resolutions? It's, it's so hard to change our behavior. Behavior change is unbelievably hard. And you're saying like a third of people are sticking with, that's extraordinary to me. So, um, so, so, so use these fresh start dates as a way to, you know, use timing to get to change your behavior for the good. You know, you had one other thing that I just really thought was fascinating. And I, I find it fascinating just from personal experience as well that you talked about the power of people doing things together mm. or synchron- synchronizing. And yeah. I really especially love what you talked about, about choral singing. So give us those examples. Tell them, tell them why it's so powerful. Do you sing in a choir? I don't right now, but I always have. Okay, you know? great. Okay, this, this, of all the stuff I've been writing about for 20 years, this line of research might be the most, the thing that blew me away the most. It's just extraordinary. So, so there's a lot of research on, on exactly as you say, on choral singing. And what it shows is that choral singing is so good for us on so many different levels. I, I, the, 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 the dimensions in which it's good for us is, it's mind boggling now. I mean, so, so what you have, so, so for instance, um, it boosts our mood. Maybe not that big of a surprise. It actually can be a prophylactic against, against depression. That's kind of interesting, all right? Yeah. It, it, it actually uh, increases our pain threshold, which is kind of, okay, now we're getting kind of interesting. Okay. The uh-huh. other thing that it does, this is the amazing experiment that I write about in the book is, okay, so here's what you do. You, you, um, you draw blood from people, okay? Hmm. And you measure their immunoglobulin levels. There's a measure of their immune response. Then they sing in a choir, measure their, to draw blood again. Their immunoglobulin levels go up. Now, you can't fake that. You can say, oh, I, I'm happier now. And you might be lying to yourself or to the other person. But it's hard. You can't fake your immunoglobulin. You can't like, oh, I'm going to will my immunoglobulin levels, you know. Um, and so uh, if you look at uh, what happens with kids, um, uh, little kids who do synchronous activities, um, whether it is playing like clap and tap games or even things like swinging on a swing set synchronously, um, afterwards are more likely to help the teacher, uh, more likely to play with kids who don't look like them. I mean, it's just incredible. But back to choral singing. Here's the punchline. Let's take exercise. Exercise is so good for you. There's almost no argument against exercise. Everybody who's able-bodied, and even people who have even some certain kinds of disabilities, should try to exercise if they have the means to do that. There's no question about it. Exercise is universally good for you. I mean, maybe some people over-exercise. 1% of people, you know, like they do too much. But 99% of us, we should be exercising. It is undeniably good for us. I would say that choral singing is almost as good for us as exercise. It is, my reading the research shows, something like meditation. Meditation is very good for us. I'd say it's up there with meditation. I I actually would give meditation the bronze. I give exercise the, the gold. But I would give choral singing the silver and meditation the bronze. Choral singing is so good for us. Um, 
um, and um, on every dimension on every dimension of our life. And it makes me it makes me start to wonder. Wow, it's like I think that so many religious traditions had intuited that because yeah. most, most religious traditions have some kind of some kind of group singing. Um, and what's interesting about that, and I'll shut up in here in a second, is that it's not singing per se. Okay, because you, you can test this. So if you if you do this, okay, take my immunoglobulin levels, then I sing in the shower by myself, check them again, no change, right? Wow. It's not singing. It's singing in a group. And I never participated much in a choir except when I was in elementary school. And what's weird is that I remember really liking it. Oh, yeah. Like the way it felt, you know? Like, I mean, you're, it's like, it fe- you know, you know, and I was like, oh, that's kind of, that's kind of a weird thing. It's like, a, you know, and I never really thought, and I, I hadn't thought about it again. Like, oh, I kind of like, and we used to sing in, in like in fifth grade choir, we used to sing like in rounds, kookaburra sits on the old gum tree. And then the other person starts kookaburra, the other group, yes, you yes. know, and I used to love the way that's those layers of sound worked. And, and, um, but again, it's like, oh, that's kind of, you know, but I never thought, I never really thought about it until literally like 40 years later when I was writing about choral singing. You know, it's interesting because I produce uh, on Broadway and I'm, you're sitting here wondering and thinking about how, about the levels of enjoyment and joy that the actors and actresses who are there on stage, but they sing together every day. They warm up together every day. They are literally, you know, on stage, you know, harmonizing and doing, and and they really are joyful people and they see it as a family, right? So it's absolutely think about the bonding that goes on with those kinds of things. And it's not, again, I don't want to single out singing only. It's all kinds of synchronized group activity. So, so there's this, there's more research on singing and choral singing just because there are more choruses and things out there, but you see it with, uh, you see it with, with group dancing. Um, you see it with um, other kinds of coordinated group activity. You see certain mm. kinds of um, of um, of, uh, of group, uh, uh, not so much here in the states, but in Asia, certain kinds of outdoor group uh, exercise yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is that is synchronized, and it's um, there's something going on there. You know, Jeff Goldblum does a program on the Disney Channel, Disney. Uh, whatever it's called yeah. anyway. And it's on the bicycle. There's one of his that's on the bicycle and there is a, there is a city in the United States and I, man, I'm just drawing a blank, but they ride bicycles together once a Interesting. week in the evening. Yeah. And it's become this huge thing. That's you know? fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, maybe, uh, maybe Detroit, I'll, I'll look it up later. Yeah. yeah that's, fa- that's, 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 uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. And the other thing about that, just to pick up on that is um, one of the things that goes, it's is a great. It, this this is a good example of a book that I want to read, but probably I'm not the right person to write. Is we have on the Jeff Goldblum outside thing, we have uh, really undersold the benefits of outdoors and nature. Yeah. Uh, the evidence there, again, not in a touchy feely like tree hugging way, but yeah. if you look at the evidence, the the benefits of being outside the benefits of being in nature, the benefits of being around greenery are extraordinary. You see it in some really remarkable, the research on this is fascinating because what they're able to do now is they're able to take uh, data from uh, um, like cameras that can give you the, like the topographical view of of an area. Mm -hmm. And what they'll, what they'll show is that places that are places that are closer to green have lower crime rates, for instance. Oh, you yeah. know, I mean, it's just it's just really, really it's it's a, it's a really incredible thing. So so the fact that people are riding out, 
they're, they're, they're doing something social, they're doing something synchronous, they're doing something outside, mm -hmm. they're doing something freely chosen. They're in motion. I mean, it's like, of course, this is going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. I just interviewed uh, Florence Williams uh, on The Nature Fix. And uh, and that uh, incredible research, incredible work. And um, absolutely, those are the findings, right? And yeah. uh, we talked a long time about that. And uh, it really is something that we we need to understand not only for ourselves as adults but for our our kids and and the way that we you know, we need to to alter and change um perhaps the way we're even parenting in those those areas so that we pass that along right so yeah okay so let's talk about now your book drive it's all about motivation um what drives people so where does motivation come from well, I mean, motivation comes from a lot of different places, and that's it really. That's actually really important to understand that motivation is complex, not simple. We tend to think of it as pretty simple. So, human beings are a mix of drives. So, uh, one very important motivation is that we we have biological drives, right? We eat when we're hungry, we drink when we're thirsty. Okay, so our biological drives are absolutely part of who we are. Um, but that's not all of who we are. Uh, human beings also have another drive, in that we do respond in fairly predictable ways to rewards and punishments. In general, if you reward behavior, you get more of it. If you punish behavior, you get less of it. That's another part of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's another dimension of our behavior that I think, especially in organizations, hasn't been taken seriously enough and hasn't been honored enough, hasn't been recognized in a strategic way for what it is. And that's, um, we do things because we like doing them. Mm -hmm. We do things because they're interesting. We do things because they contribute to other people. We do things because it's the right thing to do. Um, and so there's that other drive too. And, it, and you really have to have both as a, as a parent, as a teacher, as a boss, uh, as a contributor, individual trying to make his or her way through the world, this three-dimensional view of, of motivation. Um, and we often don't incorporate that third dimension. We tend to think that especially in organizations, that if you simply get the mix of carrots and sticks right, people will do what you want them to do the way you want them to do it. And we have 50 years of social science telling us that is not true. So how do we get it right then if we keep getting it wrong? <laughs> well, that's, a, I mean, that, that's an important question. So, so once again, it's important to understand the science. And what the science tells us is that motivation is complicated, but there's one key nugget from this 50 years of research that I think is really, you know, the most important. And it's this, there's a certain kind of reward that we use in organizations. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent reward. I like to call it instead an if then reward as an, if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. 50 years of science tells us that if then rewards, not all rewards, but if then rewards are extremely effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. Why do they work so well? Because we love rewards. Human beings love rewards. You offer me a reward, you got my attention. You got my attention in this very like fixed and narrow way. Um, that's good if I know exactly what I need to do and I can see the finish line. So if then rewards are great for simple tasks with short time horizons, but they are less effective, far less effective, sometimes even detrimental for work that require for, for creative conceptual work with longer time horizons. Why? It's the same reason. If you have a creative task, you don't want to look at it like this. You want to look at it more expansively. And so because we love rewards so much, the contingent rewards get us to look at a problem like this. 
When in many cases, we want to look at it like this. We want to take something from here. We want to take something from there. We want to put it together and um, turn it upside down. And so if then rewards are great for simple tasks over the short term, they're not so great for complex tasks over the long term. And the problem we have, especially in organizations, is that we use them for everything. So instead of using them only for simple tasks with short time horizons, we use them for everything. And then when they backfire, when they don't work, we just scratch our heads and wonder what went wrong. Uh, when in fact, if we just looked at this, this incredible bounty of research, we would come up with better ways to do things. So what if you feel unmotivated? What do you recommend? Well, it depends on why. Um, so it depends on why you're feeling unmotivated. And there are a lot of things that you can do on that. So, um, so, so one of my, so there are different, there are different levels of it. So uh, are you feeling unmotivated? It, sometimes people are unmotivated because the task that they face is actually too difficult for them. Mm. Um, and what we want is, and, and that's, you know, and, and, and the, the, the degree of challenge in a task is actually really important. Uh, we want, you know, Goldilocks tasks. We want to want things that are, if we, if things, if something that is too easy, we get bored. If it's too hard, we become anxious and unmotivated. And so what you want is you want something in that kind of, in that kind of sweet spot. So there's a really good here, forgive me. There's a really good way to think about this. Um, I'm going to draw something for you. Is that all right? Oh yeah, please. So I'm going to draw a two by two matrix here. Okay, so, um, so on one is, hang on a second here. That's fine. Here we go, this will be exciting. All right, so here we go. So here's a two by two matrix, all right? So on this one is, this is what social science is called decision latitude, how much control you have over something. And this one is, 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 um, is, uh, is challenge, okay? So you have four different possibilities. You can have, okay, so we can go around the horn here. So let's say that you have something that is not challenging and you have no say over how you do it, okay? Uh-huh. That is monotonous, right? Yes. Okay, so it'd be like saying, Dan, you have to stuff envelopes. You have to stuff this many envelopes every single day from this time to this time. I know how to stuff envelopes. I don't have any, it's not challenging. I don't have any control, okay? That is monotonous, all right? That's not what we want. Now, let's say you have something that is, uh, we have a lot of decision latitude, but it's not that challenging. All right. Uh, and I'll give you an example of this. When I was a kid in Columbus, Ohio, uh, on the summers, I would mow some lawns. But here's the thing. I wasn't very enterprising. So I would have like two or three lawns. And the people who were doing it really didn't care. So I could do it whenever I wanted. All right. So I had like this low challenge thing with perfect latitude over when I did it. And as a consequence, I did a terrible job. All right. Uh, because... I had decision latitude, but it wasn't challenging. So that that's more like that's like that's drift down here. Mm. Now, moving around the horn here. Let's say you have something that's super challenging, but you have no decision latitude. And this is the, this is true for a lot of people. They have we're seeing this right now with a lot of first responders. We're seeing this with a lot of of, um, of uh, healthcare professionals. Um, they have incredibly challenging jobs, but they have no say over anything. Mm. All right, uh, that leads you to burnout. Wow. All right. And so what you really want is you want high decision latitude and high challenge that gives you the feeling of flow. Um, and, and, you know, and that's what we want. So to answer your question, you know, if you're feeling unmotivated, the question is, why are you feeling unmotivated? Are you feeling unmotivated because you don't have decision latitude? Then what's a way to get more sovereignty over what you do, how you do it, when you do it? Are you feeling unmotivated because the task is too difficult or the, or this task too easy? 
that's a, you know, so, so part of it is, 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 is on something as complicated as that is how do you, what are the ways to diagnose what's really going on? Okay. So that's, that ends up being really important. And, and as, and as, and as, and as wonky as this is, I actually, I actually really like this way of thinking about things uh-huh. because, um, because a lot of us find ourselves here in, I think about all the jobs that I've had, all the work that I've done, I've been in each of these four categories at certain points. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There have been many times where I was drifting. There are many times I had things that I was doing that was monotonous. There have been many times where I burned out. Um, and so, so that becomes part of it. Now, here's the other thing. Um, sometimes, forgive me, sometimes lack of motivation is a problem with what psychologists call simply emotion regulation, right? There's something, we're just not regulating our emotions properly. There's something about the task before us that we find that is, that is, that is daunting to us. And one of the things that you can do in this, in this, in this response is do anything possible simply to get started. So don't, so, so on this one, it's like you should do the diagnosis. And if it seems like it's not super clear, the best move is just simply to get started. Let me give you some examples of what this means in a practical sense. So, uh, cause, uh, cause I'm, I'm, cause here I'm, here I am the, um, not only the, the president of hair club for men, but also a client. Cause I've been, I've done this stuff myself all the time. So I'm going to give you two that I really like. One of them is a very well-known technique known as the Pomodoro technique, the Pomodoro technique, Pomodoro technique. Pomodoro is, is Italian for the word tomato. And it comes from these kitchen timers in the shape of a tomato. And what, 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 and the, what the technique is, is you set the timer for whatever, 25 minutes. And all you say is like, all I'm gonna do is work for 25 minutes. That's it, uh-huh. okay? I'm just gonna, I, I've been, I'm not motivated to write this chapter, say, to use a very personal uh-huh. Uh-huh. at the fingertips example here. I'm not motivated to write this chapter so instead of trying to write the chapter, all I'm going to do is set this clock and work for 25 consecutive minutes and then I'll be done. And what happens is that you work for 25 minutes and then what often happens is that you work for longer than that. Or you say, okay, that wasn't so bad. I'll do another 25 minutes and another 25 minutes. So anything you can do to get started. So the Pomodoro technique uh, is, a, is a great answer to problems of emotion regulation. Another technique that I use is... Um, is um, is, is sort of the just five or the just five more, okay? So when you're feeling, oh, okay, it's like, oh God, like I have a, here's a, here's a stack of research papers that I have to read, okay? And so some of them are pretty boring. It's like, oh God, you know what? Okay, I can't, I can't, I'm just, I'm just not motivated to read these things. So I say to myself, Dan, okay, just five more pages. All I have to do is read five more pages and that's gonna be fine. Or I'm writing something, okay? you're cool. You don't have to finish this thing. You don't have to do that much work, just five more sentences. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, what often happens with that, or um, like it happens to me with email sometimes, like it's so backed up on emails. Like, Oh my God, I have so much email to answer. How am I going to do this? I can't, I hate answering email. It's horrible. Okay. I'm just going to answer five. And what happens is, is that you end up answering 15. Um, so, so, so again, those are two very specific, practical, tactical things that you can do. The, the idea here is that, um, in certain circumstances, any way you can trick yourself into getting started, uh, is advantageous. So how, how would that work for parents? Let's just say the parents tuning in, how does that work with your kids? Uh, you know what? I've seen a lot of educators, particularly for, uh, boys, uh, use a version of the Pomodoro technique. Uh, okay. um, now with say, say for, for, for boys, um, um, I actually gave my own son uh, like a, a Pomodoro cube. 
I'm sitting here thinking that's something I need yeah. to get. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a there's one thing that there's a Pomodoro cube. I don't know if they call it that, but it's like it's like it costs like five bucks, you know, online. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and essentially what it is, it's, it's, it's imagine a cube. It's almost like a like like a, a die and it had different numbers on it. And it's like five, 10, 15, 20. And you can just sort of put it down on your desk. And let's say the five is on the top. What it'll do is it'll start as soon as you put it down, it'll start counting five minutes and then it'll ring after five minutes. And so if you can get five minutes of sustained attention, you know, and then maybe another five minutes of sustained attention yeah. and another five minutes of sustained attention. Um, so so I, I think that you can you can do that. I think one of the most important things is um, and, and again, you know, you know this and our, your listeners know this, but it's worth repeating is. Um, if you're a parent, like you, it's helpful for your kids to know that that that, that you struggle with this. Yeah. That it, that you don't always get it right. That, or at least in my case, you rarely get it right. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, like you know, I'll tell my kids about the. My, my kids know that I use Pomodoro, and and I don't. Um, my son actually outgrew that thing, but I think it was useful for you know a few weeks mm-hmm. in like middle school or something like that. Um, and um, you know. Uh, you know, I, I say, you know, I, like, like my, I have a daughter who just got home from um, uh, college and, you know, she has some, some stuff to write and it's like, oh, I got to write this, you know, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I hear you. I struggle with this all the time. Yeah. You know, here's what you do. It's like taking, you know, uh, 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 turn off your phone and set an hour and just say, I'm going to do nothing but write for the next hour and see what happens. You know, cause I, that's what I do. So if we, if we talk about our own struggles and our own solutions, um, I think that's helpful too. Do you have time, Dan, to stick with us for a little bit longer for some audience questions? Okay. All right. Here we go. You have a new master class. Tell us about it. Oh, yes. So Masterclasses is really amazing uh, online education platform uh, where uh, some really incredible people teach the secrets of their craft. So you'll have Helen Mirren teaching acting and Serena Williams teaching tennis and uh, Margaret Atwood teaching storytelling and um, uh, against their better judgment masterclass asked me to do something on uh, something I've researched a lot which is selling and persuasion Uh and so um, so we put together what I think is a really uh, I think is one of the best pieces of work I've done in several years Uh, a it's uh, three hours of video 16 lessons uh, looking at the science of of selling persuasion and influence uh, with some really, really smart, practical tips on, uh, you know, how to get people to change their behavior without changing their mind, um, how to frame your message so that it's more persuasive, uh, some different ways to pitch your idea, um, with the difference between, say, irritating people and agitating people, uh, how to get better attuned to someone else's point of view. So a lot of really good stuff. Oh, that sounds great. So here's question number two that goes yeah. right along with that, because they asked, what's wrong with the way people typically try to persuade others, and what should we do instead? That sounds like oh. a deep one. It is a deep you one. It's, that? It's, <laughs> I, I can, but, but you know what? It's, it's interesting, because sometimes the deepest questions have very simple answers. And that is a very deep question. And I think the, the, the real answer to this is, I actually hinted at it before, is, is to understand the difference between um, um, uh, irritation and agitation. Irritation is when I try to get you to do something I want you to do. Mm. Agitation is when I try to get you to do something that you want to do. And, and what we really want in persuading moving others is we want to, we don't, we're not trying to trick people. We're not trying to coerce people. We're trying to put, change the context and put people in a, in a, in a situation where 
um, they reach the conclusion that you want them to reach, you hope them to reach on their own because that's the right conclusion for them to reach. And it's, it's, it's a hard task, but um, uh, you know, it's, it's this, it, it goes back to some of the work on motivation as well, where one of the great scholars of this told me when I interviewed him years ago, uh, a guy named Edward DC, he says, okay, wait a second. We have to understand is that motivation is not something one person does to another. Uh, it's something that people do for themselves. And I think the same thing is true with, um, with persuasion. Change the context, help people see things afresh, and help them come to their own conclusions. Okay, well said. All right, here's another one. Lots of people are hearing about automation, AI, and the future of jobs. There's a ton of anxiety around this. What kind of job skills do you think will be in demand going forward, and which skills will decline? Um, Okay, so uh, as it happens, I wrote a book about this about 15 years ago uh, in the early days of this. And but I I think there's an even simpler way to explain this is that what you want to be able to do is uh, you want to have skills that augment machine intelligence rather than compete with machine intelligence. Uh So, for instance, um, uh, if you think about something, um, you think about something much more mundane. Think like I'm old enough to remember like when calculators first came out. Okay. So you think about a calculator, right? When the calculator comes out, your ability to do long division in your head or addition of a lot of figures in your head doesn't really matter that much. Right. Um, because you don't want to compete with a calculator on literally on calculation. You're not going to, you're not going to win. What you want to be able to do is you want to be able to be numerate and be able to ask the right questions about numbers and know what to add and subtract what to do long division about. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing is true with, uh, the same thing is true with, uh, if you look at something like, um, like, uh, like, uh, like data science and big data, um, the ability of machines to analyze data is remarkable, but we need to know what are the right questions to ask. So uh, we need to be able to see connections between different disciplines. We need to be able to, uh, I think the skills of composition are incredibly important. Um, so, so artistic skills like composition, uh, empathic skills. Can you understand where someone else is coming from design skills? Can you create something that has both uh, utility and significance at the same time? Storytelling. Can you not only about facts, but can you put facts in context in a way that is emotionally compelling, uh, meaning, uh, can you help people move closer toward meaning? So, so the, the long, the short answer is augment machine intelligence. Don't compete with it. The, the longer answer is. Think about things that are fundamentally human skills like design, storytelling, composition, symphonic thinking, uh, empathy. Um, and those are the things that where you, you, you need to have the basic, you, you have to have the hardcore SAT spreadsheet skills. You, you need those. If you don't have those, you're in a world of hurt. Uh, but the SAT spreadsheet skills, while they're necessary, they're not sufficient. And you need to accompany those with skills that I have to say in this country, we haven't taken seriously enough artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. I agree with you on that. Definitely. Well, you're an artist, so you would. (laughs) So I have to ask you this last question um, comes from me. So uh, what time of the day should I have interviewed you? Oh, interesting. Well, it's a great question because, you know, you interviewed me in the trough. And so, but I knew that going in. Yeah. So I actually had a cup of coffee right before, literally 15 minutes before, and I took a quick walk around my block because I knew that I didn't want to come into this interview with you 
uh, during the during the dad draft. So I think that we succeeded in doing it despite that. We did that, that bad timing. Um, but if we were to do it again, it depends on what kind of interview you want to have. If you want to have like a, a a wild and crazy, more discursive interview, let's do it late in the afternoon. If you want to if you want to have a more kind of hey, what's the science say? What's what's going on? Give me the analysis. Mm-hmm. You want to do it first thing in the morning. Well, thanks for drinking your coffee. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. First time, I've, first time I've ever been thanked for drinking coffee. <laughs> All right. So, Dan, where, I want the listeners to know where we can follow you, uh, what's coming up next, what's going on, and what is next. Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at my website, danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com, danpink.com. Uh, I'm also now working on a book about regret and uh my team and I have been collecting regrets from people around the world. You can find out more there at worldregretsurvey.com. And if you go to worldregretsurvey.com, you can see some of the 10,000 regrets we've gathered from more than 30 countries around the world. What wow, do people regret and why do they regret it? We're going to draw a picture of that and write a book. I'm drawing a picture of that and writing a book about what regret is, why it's better than we think, how regret makes us human, how regret makes us better. Uh, a, a really great analysis of the things that people regret, which offers us a path to the good life and some good tips on how to take regret, um, how, to, how to look backward to move forward. You have to come back and talk to me about that again. I will regret it if I don't. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. My I pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Have a great day. Look, we have lots of great interviews on Nelda Live, so hit like and subscribe. There's much more to come.